Part four, chapter six of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part four, chapter six. Welcome to the Deliverer. On the morning of October 2, the civil authorities transmitted the following message through Canadian Corps signals to the French government, quote, After fifty months of hard captivity, but always resolute and inspired by the memory of her sons heroically fallen on the field of honor, the city of Valenciennes, cruelly separated from her brave mayor, Dr. Truchon, and with a great number of her inhabitants in exile, addresses to the French government the expression of her admiration for the victorious armies of the Entente and her patriotic cry of joy on the day of her deliverance. Dr. Truchon had persistently opposed the exactions of the German military governor until finally he was exiled. Acting in his place remained Messieurs Billier and Damien, who, together with Monsieur René Delame, representative of the American Relief Committee, administered faithfully to the wants of their people, and were not to be deterred by threats and commands from doing what was possible to mitigate their unhappy condition, for their lot was very miserable. Except for a little meal, these depended entirely on American and Spanish relief for their food, and the one bright spot in a story of oppression and violence is the figure of a German, Rittmeister Winnerborg, associated with Monsieur Delame in the relief, who did his best to see that it was honestly distributed. The normal population of Valenciennes is about 35,000, and on October 13, the entire population was evacuated by order, the movement continuing for a fortnight until on our entry only 4,500 of the original inhabitants were left, many being too sick to move. About 25,000 people remained in the city, but most of these were from Cambrai, whence 50,000 evacuees had passed through Valenciennes making the long journey on foot, the movement starting so soon as the advance of the Canadian Corps over the Canal du Nord developed. These poor folk passed through Valenciennes to Mons and Maubeuge at the rate of about 5,000 a day, and added immensely to the difficulties of rationing the civil population. Many were so exhausted they could not continue their flight. On the morning of November 1, when the battle opened, the entire civilian population was paraded in the Place d'Armes and ordered to evacuate immediately. Soon the roads leading east were hopelessly choked and the movement was stopped. That day there was great running to and fro by the garrison, and at night the enemy marched out. As they left, they cut the water supply, destroyed the reservoirs, and blew up the powerhouse supplying the city with electric light. Hardly were they clear of the town, hitherto undamaged, than they turned their batteries upon it, doing some damage in the Place d'Armes, 
and to the east end of the cathedral, raining down phosphor shells with the intention of setting the city afire. Only the prompt entry of our troops and the vigorous offensive we pushed out both north and east saved the city. Our troops were rapturously received. The enemy had filled the city with gas, and women and children, their eyes red-rimmed and streaming, pressed upon them, embracing, quote, Les braves Canadiens, end quote. From out their slender store they produced hot coffee and a curious substance made from coarse meal, known to them as bread. Called together by the two acting mayors, the city council promptly adopted resolutions, thanking their deliverers and renaming the Place de Famars where we had first entered the Place du Canada with the promise that a worthy monument would be erected in that spacious square to the Canadian soldiers fallen in battle. In contrast to Cambrai and Douai, no systematic sack had taken place here, but individual soldiers had looted at will. All the works of art had been removed from the art gallery and the museum, where still were a number of statues packed ready for shipment. The enemy exactions throughout these had been very severe and even meticulous. Thus an old lady had twenty-three hens. She was ordered to supply fifteen eggs a day or pay a mark for each egg short. The hens went broody, and in despair of the daily drain upon her purse, she killed the hens and sent them in a basket to the Herr Commandant. She was fined ten thousand marks. One comes back again and again to the contemplation of the French people of the evacuated areas. They are everywhere, on the roads, in the villages, bearing without complaint nor heroics their heavy burden, hiding in their hearts their sorrows that they may turn a joyous face to the deliverer. Of all the deep-bitten impressions one must carry away, none is so indelible as that of this patient endurance. The fine, quiet courage and elasticity of spirit that may bend but not break, wherein lies the secret of the mute but unshaken fortitude that suffers adversity, hunger, cold, jeers and insults of the invader, loss of household goods, loss, too, of husband, brother, and ailing child, but does not despair. Their intense patriotism carries them through. Self is immolated in the state. One asks oneself, having lost all, what remains? There remains France, and the promise of the generations to come. For the rest there is the comfortable spectacle of the beaten enemy. One dwells on these people released from their captivity, because it is for that our men have suffered and endured. Here are the ripe fruits of their sacrifice. In their youth they were consecrated to this brave purpose. Its attainment ennobles their arms, sets a crown upon their staunch array. It is not for a little thing they have fought and died. Out of all the materialism of war, there emerges again the high idealism that set their feet along that bitter road. They are all but inarticulate, these peasants. It is difficult to enlist their interest in the recital of their experiences they would sooner forget. 
They take it all as a matter of course, For the man a soldier's grave, For the woman unwept tears. Such is war to the French nation. Little is left of, quote, La gloire, end quote. And now that tardy victory breaks through the gloom, They trudge patiently back to their desolated hearths, one wonders if they can ever regain their traditional gaiety, or is it not a myth built up around the artificial life of Paris? The old people are very old, the young wan. One of the mayors of Valenciennes, a highly educated man, sought to explain his state of mind. Quote, you must pardon me, he said. I am not able to express myself clearly. For so long speech was repressed, and one was permitted only to answer questions. We are caught in a block of traffic. It is a one-track road, and as we wait, an endless procession goes by of marching men, lorries and wagons, and limbers and guns. It is such a rare day as one encounters on the prairie in October, when the unexpected warmth of the sun dispels the mists of a frosty night and the sky is blue and still. But here in this sad land of France, the earth is green with sprouting grain, and russet and gold still canopy the woods. From either direction, little groups of peasants seek their homes. Old men yoked to high two-wheeled handcarts, with women pushing behind, or carrying nothing more than bundles tied and ticking. Our soldiers pick up the children. An old woman and her grandchild are passing from man to Famars, and she tells her pitiable story. They had had the good fortune to remain in their home in Famars undisturbed, the grandfather almost decrepit. British troops captured the village and they were freed, but the enemy was throwing in gas shells, and it was ordered the villagers must go back behind our lines. The old man remained to guard his little property, by an ironic turn of fate, the enemy recaptured the village and removed all left behind with their goods and chattels. Quote, Why did they not leave me with my man? she asked. I am an old woman and have not long to live. It is better to die of the gas than return to nothing. End quote. There was the baffling mystery of why these people passed in opposite directions, in all sorts of cross directions, from Denain they were returning to Valenciennes, and from Valenciennes to Denain, while in both were many people from far Cambrai. And here is the most brutal feature of the Bosch policy. They deliberately transferred villages, tearing asunder the countryside, that they might more easily control these destitutes set in strange places. The young men to work in the trenches and the young women in munition factories, or worse. The village cleared, there followed the systematic sack, contents of value loaded onto government trains, the rest given to the men, and into this ruin other villages were transferred. Presently we are in Famars, a long queue stretches back of the church. Within, Monsieur Le Maire is distributing the iron rations provided by the British army. One by one the villagers pass in and get their bully beef, biscuit, tea, sugar, pepper, and salt. In another corner the wants of the sick and of the very poor are looked after by an energetic officer 
of the Canadian Red Cross, soup, cocoa, and the like, gift of the people of Canada. Shells have struck that church. Four times it has changed hands. Underfoot is a litter of plaster and straw where German soldiers have been billeted. On the walls the stations of the cross are shattered or awry. But what fitter use for a church? Monsieur le Curé is all smiles. A woman, babe in arms, comes forward. On her face the resignation, the pity of the Madonna. These are the commonplaces of evacuated France. Terrible stories might be recounted, heroic episodes where the brutal fury of the invader has been defied to the end, but they are not needed to illustrate the splendor that emerges from the fundamental misery, the splendor of these patient people of France. The whole country east of us is bisected with little rivers running through swamps and irrigation ditches. On our left front this has all been flooded, and the going is very difficult for troops of our third division. The enemy has improvised a line of rifle pits, linking up the fosses of slag, each of these a miniature fortress. Everything now depends on the work of the Canadian engineers, supported by our railway troops and labor battalions. These push on indefatigably, often under fire, and in a remarkably short time succeed in restoring communications in a country where the enemy has blown every bridge and causeway and even every length of steel. By evening of November 5, our line, with the 11th Brigade on the right, the 12th Brigade in the center, and the 8th Brigade on the left, covering a battlefront of about 12,000 yards, extended from the east of the Onel River between Marchepont and Angra, thence east of Quarouble, through Vic and across the flooded area, to where two miles south of Conde, the 3rd Canadian Division had bridged the Scheldt. The Onel, a tributary of the Grand Onel, which it joins a little further north, is at this point the boundary between France and Belgium, and on the night of November 5 to 6, the 87th Battalion, Montreal Grenadier Guards, were the first Canadian troops to bivouac on Belgian soil since we had left the Ypres salient after having crossed the river during the day by a brilliant maneuver. The following morning, November 6, the 102nd Battalion on our right passed through the 87th and captured Bazieux. On our left, the 8th Brigade, compromised of CMR battalions, after heavy fighting over the only practical causeways through swamps and marshes, captured Crespin, and then made a dashing attack on the strongly held line of the Honneau River, effecting a crossing on the extreme left, thus turning the enemy's positions. The 12th Brigade, meanwhile, had established itself in the southern outskirts of the French town of Quivrechain, and now in conjunction with the 8th Brigade, completed its capture and crossed the Arnel into Belgian territory, the enemy having failed to blow the bridge at this point. By night we held the western outskirts of Quiverin on the Mons Road. Five hundred prisoners were captured. On the night of November 6-7, to 7, the 2nd Canadian Division completed relief of the 4th Canadian Division 
which had been in the thick of all the fighting since September 27, and now went into rest. We were now entering a thickly populated coal mining country where the industrial villages melt one into another practically all the way to Mont. The enemy was fighting a delaying action to enable him to evacuate his material. Faces of our weary, mud-stained men who all day had toiled after the retreating Bosch light up at the news that comes over the French wireless that German envoys are on French soil, suppliants for peace. About this time, Le Petit Parisien publishes an article entitled, quote, The Canadians in the Great War, end of quote. After quoting from the recent exchange of messages between Premier Sir Robert Borden and Sir Arthur Currie on the occasion of the anniversary of the arrival of the Canadian First Contingent in France, the article continues as follows, quote, The message of General Currie goes a great way beyond the usual scope of such manifestos. One cannot read it without profound emotion so sternly grand are the sentiments he expresses in the midst of the rumors and the agitation created by the enemy peace offensive the authoritative voice of the great canadian general is lifted clear vigorous and sincere End quote. after quoting from the message the passage wherein the corps commander enumerates the necessity of complete victory if peace is to be permanently restored and declares that the Canadian did demand nothing less. The journal concludes, quote, The generous and sublime prayer of those who perhaps are to die in the battle of tomorrow has been widely heard. Our own armies, bound to silence, will read with gratitude this message of General Curry, for it reflects admirably all that lies repressed in the soul of our heroic soldiers. End quote. A corps commander sums up the operations of this period as follows. Quote, the advance was continued in the face of stubborn resistance from enemy rear guards throughout November 2 on the whole corps front, and by nightfall had reached the line Marley, Saint Solve, Bazamaray, Rocourt Chateau, all inclusive. On the front of the 3rd Canadian Division, the advance was particularly difficult the country being under water except where railway embankments, slag heaps, and houses stood up out of the flood and afforded excellent cover for enemy machine gunners and riflemen. Some stiff fighting took place when the advance was continued on November 3, but in spite of this good progress was made, especially on the right on the front of the 11th Canadian Infantry Brigade, Brigadier General V. W. Odlum, where the line was advanced 3,000 yards and the village of Estreau captured. Progress on the left was necessarily slower, owing to the flooded nature of the ground. The front of the 3rd Canadian Division had now become very extended, and on the night of November 3-4, to 4, a portion of it from Odemey to Fresnes, about a mile in extent, was handed over to the 52nd Division of the 8th Corps. On November 4, the line was carried forward about two miles on the front of the 4th Canadian Division. The village of Onang and the western part of Rombies fell into our hands after severe fighting. The 3rd Canadian Division was still forcing its way through marsh and water, 
had made good the Vic Diaz Railway on the extreme left of the 3rd Canadian Division. A strong point east of the Scheldt Canal was captured and the Escaupont-Quivrechain Railway Bridge was taken. During the early hours of November 5, the 3rd Canadian Division entered the town of Vic following the capture of two points of local tactical importance west of the town. A large portion of the line of the Escaupont Quivrechain Railway was also made good, and the northern part of Quarobla captured during the day. The 4th Canadian Division attacked on November 5, and clearing Rombies and the southern part of Quarobla crossed the river Onel between Rombies and Marchepont, the enemy fighting very stubbornly to prevent our crossing. By this advance, the first troops of the Canadian Corps crossed into Belgian territory the Onel River being the boundary at that point. The advance was resumed on November 6, and important progress made. The villages of Marchipont, Bazieux, and the southern portion of Quivrechamps were taken by the 4th Canadian Division, while the 3rd Canadian Division took the railway station and glassworks at Quivrechamps and the northern part of the village, and also captured Crespin further north. The enemy's resistance was very stubborn. The 22nd Corps on the right were forced to give up a portion of the ground gained and to withdraw to the west bank of Fonel River at Angra in the face of severe counterattacks. The 2nd Canadian Division relieved the 4th Canadian Division during the night of November 6-7, and the latter was withdrawn to rest in the Anzon aubry area just west of Valenciennes. On our right, we were now getting into the heart of the Belgian coal district, a thickly populated area where the numerous towns and villages, the coal mines, and the commanding slag heaps complicated the task. The 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions attacked on the morning of November 7th, and although by this time the weather had broken and the country was rapidly becoming thoroughly waterlogged, good progress was made during the day, the enemy showing increasing signs of demoralization. The 2nd Canadian Division on the right captured the sugar refinery northeast of Bazieux, the town of Elouge, and the many small settlements that surrounded it. In conjunction with the 3rd Canadian Division, Quivrain was taken and an advance of about two and a half miles made. On the left, the 3rd Canadian Division, in addition to cooperating with the 2nd Canadian Division in the capture of Quivrain, pushed along the Mons Road for about 4,000 yards and took La Croix and Ancise north of the road. The 8th Corps on our left had still been unable to negotiate the Scheldt Canal. In order to better protect our rapidly lengthening left flank, the 3rd Canadian Division was ordered to extend its attacks to the north and in addition to clearing the country south of the Condé Mons Canal to secure the crossings of the canal. End of Part 4, Chapter 6 Recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts, October 2010